The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Coordinating Better Outcomes in Multiple Myeloma, Pharmacist Leadership with Novel Antibodies and CAR-T Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NDY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to this program entitled Coordinating Better Outcomes in Multiple Myeloma, Pharmacist Leadership with Novel Antibodies and CAR-T Therapy. Along with Dr. Zara Mahmoud-Jafari, uh, I'm Donald Harvey, and we're excited to bring you this presentation. So as we think about myeloma therapeutics since 2015, we've had a number of advances. So an eight-year period has really changed the way we think about treating disease, uh, not only initially, but also certainly in relapsed and refractory care. Since 2015, that uh, first landmark was the approval of drugs targeted towards CD38 and SLAMF7, with daratumumab and elatuzumab coming onto the market. Moving forward so with CD38 therapies, uh, beyond single-agent daratumumab, there were expanded indications with combinations. Uh, there was split dosing that became clear that was okay uh, for patients who might not tolerate IV therapy over a single day. And then finally, subcutaneous formulation, which allowed us to really advance the care and reduce infusion reactions substantially. We also had a second agent come onto the market in esituximab in 2020. And then moving forward, we continue to expand CD38 options as well as BCMA targets. Uh, so B-cell maturation antigen, specifically belantamab mafodotin was approved in 2021. There were also expanded esituximab combinations seen in 2021. And then finally, CAR-T options that came forward that same year for relapsed refractory disease and specifically Idacel approved in 2021. Moving on to last year, Siltacel was approved for relapsed and refractory disease. We also had the first bispecific antibody targeting BCMA with a CD3 linker, and that was teclistimab. Uh, unfortunately, based on the results of DREAM3, the confirmatory trial withdrawal of Belomaf uh, for marketing authorization has been initiated. It is available via compassionate use, which Azara will get into. But in 2023 and beyond, we can expect further expansion of therapeutic options for patients with more BCMA and CD3 bispecific antibodies. We'll have some non-BCMA targets as well. And again, moving up CAR T cell as is common with all these other therapies is expected to be seen as well in patients with relapsed refractory disease and moving CAR-Ts into earlier lines. This is data which I think is pretty fascinating, and that's looking at a worldwide approach of over 3,000 patients receiving treatment, uh, again, in both uh, U.S., Latin America, Europe, Asia, uh, et cetera. And so any time we're thinking about a given patient or group of patients, the first question is, are they eligible and can they receive uh, autologous stem cell transplant? And if they can, then the therapy might be different than that uh, patient population that is ineligible for transplant. If you take a look on the left side of the first graph here, graph here for patients who are eligible for transplant, you can see that uh, the majority of individuals are treated with uh, proteasome inhibitor and imid-based therapies. In the U.S., that's predominantly lenalidomide. In Europe and other areas, it's predominantly thalidomide. And so a worldwide approach can be listed here. But one thing that's interesting, this is data from 2016 to 2021, antibody usage in the first-line therapy is quite low. 
um, and has continued to be low over time. And then when you look in the second line therapy, it doesn't go up that much. It's only up to 14% over the period of 2016 to 2021. And I think that's a little bit surprising in some instances, particularly for second line therapy. Uh, we've adopted daratumumab as initial uh, induction therapy with a quadruplet here at Emory. Uh, however, um, many centers have not. Uh, but yet you would think that antibody treatment in the next stage and the next line of therapy uh, would be more, uh, more likely to be done. Uh, similarly, in patients ineligible for transplant, taking a look at uh, antibodies there, quite, quite low initially uh, and goes up a, a bit with the second line uh, treatment. In general, patients uh, need to be assessed very carefully for their therapeutics based on what they received in frontline treatment and what it's expected biologically that the clone that may have progressed is now resistant to uh, based on what patients have uh, been exposed to previously. And again, multiple myeloma, unfortunately, uh, is still not quite curable, although we're getting closer and closer to that with better therapeutics, better disease monitoring techniques, and I think perhaps even earlier interventions with certain populations. However, we still have to look at it as an incurable disease. Having said that, we've turned myeloma into what I would call uh, the breast cancer of the hematologic malignancy world. We're able to treat over time, extend life, extend progression-free survival, uh, and try getting closer and closer to a chronic disease. And so multi-refractory disease, patients are still able to tolerate additional treatments because of uh, better tolerability and better supportive care over time. And so we do have unmet needs in those patients who are multiply refractory and an opportunity for BCMA therapies exist. Looking at this data for triple-class refractory patients, 35% uh, of those patients did not receive a new line of therapy. And looking at the data beyond that, um, in ASH of last year, uh, there was a largest study reporting outcomes of patients refractory to CD38 antibody therapy, and really showing that once you progress on those treatments, you have quite a short PFS and overall uh, survival um, when you're treated with standard of care regimens. And you can see that data in the graph on the left. We really are looking at a pretty rapid uh, decline in individuals at the time of that triple class refractory. And again, that's disease progression and therefore really new therapies continue to be needed uh, for this population. So our goals for today are listed here. We wanna help you understand the evidence behind these therapies with antibody-based treatments and CAR T-cells in myeloma at various stages. We wanna share guidance on strategies for how you might integrate these therapies into care and both in the cellular therapy as well as antibody space. And then finally, equip you, a pharmacist, with skills needed to address some of the practical aspects of care. When using these treatments, thinking about dosing, step-up dosing, safety, monitoring, concomitant therapies, supportive therapies, and patient and staff education, around the care of patients with myeloma being treated with each of these therapies. So we'll move into the first part of the treatment again. I'm really pleased to have Zara with me today uh, to go over these, uh, these treatments and antibodies, both in cellular therapy and how we can use some insights that uh, she and I have gained over the years and thinking about how myeloma is treated. We'll start off with CD38 antibodies, uh, the evidence and best practices. Uh, this is a slide that's probably familiar to many. It's certainly a slide that's consistent with most immunological uh, CD3, CD-based therapies, whether it's 2038 or anything else. 
Uh, but in general, both deratumumab and esetuximab bind to CD38. CD38 is obviously present on myeloma cells and leads, therefore, to apoptosis in that cell death. However, CD38 is also present on other cells like eosinophils, like marrow uh, progenitor cells. And so deratumumab uh, does have adverse events consistent with an on-target effect. Unfortunately, the on-target can live in places like the lungs and in the marrow, and we can see adverse events from those CD38 exposures. You can see here the multiple uh, effects of how the antibodies work. Again, it's direct apoptosis in many ways with some secondary effects of antibody drug cytotoxicity, antibody-dependent cytotoxicity. So diving into the NCCN guidelines for therapy for newly diagnosed patients, again, our first job is to assess whether or not patients are candidates for stem cell transplant. And if they are, then these are the options that are listed uh, within the NCCN guidelines. Quadruplets with antibody components are among the recommended options. However, we do have category one data, very strong data, for the combination of bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. Uh, there's also carfilzomib and lenalidomide index data that's out there. Um, and again, here at Emory, we've adopted the combination of those drugs plus daratumumab for our upfront treatment. Going back to the idea that we're strong believers here that astringent CR and as early and deep as response as possible to induction therapy uh, is critical. And so there are other agents that are out there. And again, these antibody quadruplets um, do represent a new development in therapy. And I would argue that um, daratumumab plus uh, bortezomib lenindex is the equivalent of RCHOP uh, in myeloma. So we're really starting to see impressive data over time. And, and again, uh, deeper responses through MRD and other, other measurements. Uh, other multi-agent antibody platforms are listed here as well. Daratumumab with bortezomib and thalidomide, um, uh, with uh, carfilzomib and lenalidomide, and with cyclophosphamide and bortezomib, uh, as well as dexamethasone. Uh, dexamethasone continues to be an important drug in the therapy of myeloma. Uh, certainly, we're trying to reduce the doses more and more to try to improve tolerability. Uh, however, it is a direct lympholytic drug and continues to make things work better uh, along with um, all of the other agents in the regimen. Moving on now to individuals who are not uh, transplant candidates. Again, showing up here are two Category 1 recommendations, uh, bortezomib lenalidomide index, again, like those who are candidates for transplant with uh, limited exposure in the transplant population to LEN before cell collection is critical. And looking at the options uh, that are also recommended beyond daratumumab lenindex and bortezomib uh, lenindex, uh, carfilzomib combinations, ixazomib combinations, the oral proteasome inhibitor, uh, darabortezomib melphalan and prednisone, again, primarily used outside the U.S., uh, but can be used in individuals who are not stem cell transplant candidates. And then finally, daratumumab cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone as well. Daratumumab triplets and quadruplets continue to show benefits in those who aren't eligible for transplant. These are data from two trials, um, the Maya trial and the Alcyone trial. These are combination therapies, again, that are randomized. This leads us to, uh, to data uh, category one evidence um, with uh, lenalidomide and dexamethasone. Daratumumab improved PFS all uh, up to uh, almost 
30 months compared to uh, Len and Dex alone. And so uh, daratumumab certainly adds substantial activity uh, to that regimen. Similarly, um, uh, with uh, DVMP versus um, VMP, we've got additional uh, evidence that here PFS is improved by almost double the time uh, with VMP alone. When looking at guidelines for early relapse in patients who have had one to three prior therapies, um, CD38 platforms definitely need to be considered. And as a reminder, uh, induction therapy, transplant, and linalidomide maintenance is one line of therapy. And so considering all of that, as we look at patients uh, in their treatment journey, again, uh, CD38 for us is in adopted very early. Uh, and if it hasn't been adopted already, patients definitely need to receive um, receive these agents if they can tolerate them and it's appropriate. Lots of category one data here. This is where many of these agents got their initial FDA approvals. And so we have a long history and certainly a lot of data uh, in randomized trials showing benefits uh, to patients in both the bortezomib refractory area as well as the lenalidomide refractory, which may be many of the patients uh, that you see who are transplanted uh, and are on LEN maintenance. And so those are the options listed here. I won't read them, but they are uh, possibilities for individuals who have not had CD38-directed therapies uh, before. Similarly, after one or two prior lines, you can see here that these are options that should definitely be considered. Uh, and ideally, in that rare instance where patients uh, have comorbidities or concerns that they shouldn't receive these drugs, but the vast majority are candidates and CD38-directed therapy should be considered. Thinking about triplets and relapsed and refractory disease, uh, the guidelines that are out there now and the evidence that's there include both um, intravenous daratumumab as well as subcutaneous uh, daratumumab. Palm index are, are great combinations with subcutera in instances where patients have not received it already. Uh, the PFS in combination with carfilzomib dara index versus carfilzomib index alone, again, also uh, very positive with an additional 13 months over a year of improved progression-free survival. Uh, these, are, these are just a fantastic data that continue to be uh, adopted and used. Uh, but again, as we move these drugs further up in lines of therapy, this data may become more, uh, more irrelevant over time, but also continues to, to um, bring us the need for new therapies in patients that can tolerate them. So subcutaneous dosing has really taken over in terms of daratumumab use. Uh, it is a flat dose, not weight-based, um, and that 1,800-milligram flat dose is a 15-mil volume. Um, it's a push over three to five minutes. Uh, it's given weekly for eight weeks, then every other week for 16 weeks, then monthly. If you think about daratumumab and isotuximab, again, the comparisons to rituximab are out there. Initially, the patients will have a substantial CD38-positive cell load, and that's really what causes the adverse events when those cells begin to lyse after exposure to these drugs. And when they begin to lyse, again, you can start to see adverse events initially. Uh, however, the subcutaneous route really minimizes that because it is a peak concentration effect. So lower peak concentrations with subcutaneous dosing are seen, and therefore um, adverse events are less severe. Uh, it is recommended that you observe individuals on after cycle one, day one. However, uh, Catherine Maples here at Emory and a variety of others just published a letter showing that a zero-hour infusion time or observation time after sub-Q dosing has been feasible for us here because there were no grade three events 
and with a very robust pre-medication regimen, which we'll talk about, uh, those adverse events were mitigated even further. Um, the IV formulation, the rates can vary for both Dara and Isatuximab, which we'll talk about. You can see the volumes of drug here. You may need to split the dose if patients are having adverse events with the IV formulation and not tolerating it well, um, but those times can range anywhere from one and a half to eight. It is certainly reasonable to just go ahead and plan for a split day dosing of eight per kilo day one and day two with the first infusion and first exposure to daratumumab intravenously, uh, and therefore patients can tolerate it better, uh, certainly, and it's much, much better tolerated after that initial dose. Uh, moving on to isatuximab now, we also have triplet data in relapsed refractory disease in combination with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. Again, these are expected to be patients who have refractory disease to lenalidomide uh, over time. And similarly, carfilzomib, dexamethasone, and isatuximab has been shown to have improvement over just carfilzomib and dexamethasone alone. The numbers here are similar They're in terms of doubling of time. It hasn't been reported for the PFS yet uh, with uh, isatuximab, carfilzomib, and dexamethasone, but you can see that it's expected to be quite robust over time when that data matures. Isatuximab dosing is listed here. It is still 10 milligrams per kilogram every week for four weeks, um, followed by every two weeks after that until progression or toxicity. Uh, the infusion rate is about three and a half hours. It's an escalated approach, 2550 upwards to a max of 200 mils per minute. It is in 250 mils of volume. And so uh, similarly to daratumumab, it needs to be titrated carefully and premedicated carefully to ensure minimization of exposure and adverse events to CD38 positive cell lysis. Subcutaneous isatuximab is also being investigated and is showing comparable efficacy when compared with IV administration. You can see here there's an on-body delivery system uh, for isatuximab that has to be uh, placed and injected by a healthcare professional. So there is a recommended phase two dose of 1400 milligrams. Uh, that safety profile was consistent with IV administration overall, but certainly a big advantage in terms of infusion reactions with good local tolerability. You can see the overall response rates here uh, in comparison to IV uh, isatuximab with pomalidomide and dexamethasone, uh, and both overall response rates and CR rates are quite similar throughout. Uh, Subkey formulations are also being investigated in myeloma in a non-inferiority study. Uh, and so again, expect isatuximab in a subcutaneous formulation to be available to us uh, pretty soon. Certainly thinking about hypersensitivity reactions and pre-medication is important. Uh, again, the IV formulation is going to be much uh, more associated with these reactions. Uh, Pre-medications are similar uh, within IV and sub-Q daratumumab. Um, you only need one steroid. That steroid will certainly be helpful in the management of myeloma, and an individual is getting it as part of their therapy. Uh, it should be given prior to uh, the CD38 antibody, no matter what the route or the drug. Similarly, we are uh, looking at Montelicast, and, and that's a drug that a leukotriene inhibitor, which reduces the uh, ability of CD38 positive eosinophils when they uh, lyse to cause pulmonary adverse events, cough, et cetera. And so with shortness of breath, uh, Montelicast certainly helps to prevent that over time uh, and reducing that specific adverse event related to 
uh, pulmonary issues. So what are some of our take-homes with CD38 antibodies? Uh, generally, these, these antibody platforms really have been well-tolerated, and I can't uh, stress enough the analogy to rituximab within lymphoma management and how these drugs are transforming and improving the backbone regimens, which have been used for years. Uh, they are associated with hypogammaglobulinemia, as well as cytopenias. Again, CD38 positive cells exist in the marrow, and they can independently and these antibodies can independently cause neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and over longer periods, anemia. You might want to consider prophylactic uh, intravenous gamma globulin. Uh, certainly treat infections aggressively with these drugs. Patients need to have therapies added to these regimens based on the drugs they're receiving. And so antiviral therapies for proteasome inhibitors, CD38 antibodies need to be part of the regimen. Um, if patients are on IMIDs, particularly with steroids, but also on their own, antithrombotic prophylaxis needs to be incorporated. Uh, and certainly we've been um, excited to see Subcudera and its adoption for improving adverse event profiles and also efficiency of care. Uh, Pre-medication for these drugs specifically are listed here. Uh, and in general, combining all of these agents uh, can certainly reduce the likelihood of significant adverse reactions along with uh, providing sub-Q administration of daratumumab. Cytopenias that we see with these drugs are more common with uh, combination therapies. Again, if you add it to pomalidomide, if you add it to bortezomib, dexlenalidomide, uh, et cetera, you're going to see additional cytopenias that may warrant growth factor um, initiation or dose rearrangement or holding, uh, depending on the likely cause of the, of the cytopenias. Uh, these agents can interfere with typing and screening, and so it's optimal to type and screen before beginning, beginning therapy or ensure that uh, folks in the lab and the pathology group know that patients are receiving these antibodies so that they can perform appropriate screening for uh, red cells using different testing. And then finally, COVID vaccine responses may be impaired in individuals receiving these therapies. Um, right now, it's important that patients just be vigilant around any potential infection and that they get tested uh, should they have symptoms of uh, infection and that those symptoms uh, should and those testing uh, should include um, COVID testing as well as those that we do otherwise in patients uh, with, these, uh, with these diseases. Now I'll turn it over to Zara for her portion of the presentation and she'll start off with BCM antibody BCMA antibodies. Thanks, Zara. Thank you so much, Don. I appreciate it. And thank you so much to Peerview for having me this evening to talk through some of the really great updates that have been happening in multiple myeloma. So before we start, let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about BCMA antibodies um, in late relapse. So we obviously know that in multiple myeloma, it is still a disease that does not have a cure. Um, and so it is very frequent and often that we anticipate patients will have needs for additional therapies post the CD38 antibodies, and several of the other lines that we've talked about already. So the BCMA-directed antibodies are, are definitely very much recommended in these heavily pretreated patients. Um, after four prior lines of therapy, including an anti-CD38 that Don did such a great job going through the history of, a, a proteasome inhibitor, and an IMID, we have several options now that we didn't have before, and they're all very exciting, all targeting BCMA, which we know are heavily expressed on multiple myeloma cells. These options include belantamab, idacaptogene viclusol, siltacaptogene autolusol, and ticlistamab. 
And just as Don mentioned previously, bolantamab has been removed from the market um, due to not meeting its end primary endpoint. Now, after four or more prior lines of therapy in a disease that's refractory to more than two imids or more than two uh, proteasome inhibitors and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, the recommendation at this point from NCCN is Solenex or dexamethasone, but I would say many um, do tend to mix and match uh, the BCMA agents. So kind of speaking a little bit more toward DREAM3 and the primary endpoint not being met. Um, so this was a phase three DREAM3 trial that assessed belantamab versus pomalidomide and dexamethasone in patients with relapse refractory, multiple myeloma, and it did not meet its primary endpoint of progression-free survival. What was found was that it was 11.2 months in the belantamab arm versus seven months in the POMDEX arm. So unfortunately, because of this, it was removed from the market and we no longer have it um, beyond a compassionate use program. Um, this is very patient-specific, and so um, maybe uh, we may see it reintroduced in a different way um, for future studies that are being done. For instance, DREAM7, DREAM8, and DREAM9 are ongoing trials that may inform a, a future reassessment of belantamab back to the market. Now, belantamab didn't come with um, without its own risks and toxicities. Those include a very specific um, toxicity related to ocular adverse events, this required oops, significant monitoring, counseling, and scheduled lubricant eye drops. It also had a pretty um, robust REMS program as well when it was on the market. So, you know, we may see this reintroduced back again in the future, but just keep that in mind that it is no longer um, eligible for all patients but outside of a compassionate use program. So moving on to one of the most uh, recent approvals, teclistamab, which is a bispecific antibody uh, targeting T-cells, it binds to CD3 on T-cells and BCMA on plasma cells. It really is the very first bispecific antibody in this disease state and obviously a very exciting alternative as it is off the shelf, readily available, um, and we will talk through the dosing, etc. But going through the mechanism of action, it mediates T-cell activation and subsequent lysis of BCMA expressing multiple myeloma cells. So again, a really important drug targeting a different um, target in multiple myeloma with a different mechanism of action, which um, I think we will see this more and more coming up. So the clostimab has shown to be highly active in triple class refractory multiple myeloma. The, the pivotal trial is Majestic 1 at this point, and the take up, the take homes for this for cohort A is teclistamab and relapse refractory multiple myeloma patients with no prior BCMA therapy. Well, what they found in this trial was that the overall response rate of 63% in triple class exposed relapse refractory patients, meaning more than three lines, prior lines of therapy. The median duration response in this trial was 18.4 months, and they found an MRD negativity rate of 24.7%. It was 26.7% in the all-treated patient population, and 81.5% of MRD-evaluable patients were found to be MRD negative. In this trial, the median progression-free survival was 11.3 months. So a highly active agent in, in patients who are triple class refractory. So with teclostamab dosing, this does require a step-up schedule. It does have, once we are at the weekly dosing, a flat dose, but it does take a little bit to get there. For the dosing schedule for the step-up, you have days one, four, and seven, there is some information about having some flexibility with the administration of these days, and we can talk about that in the cases later. But for the first day, it's 0 0.06 milligrams per kilo, and day four is 0.3 milligrams per kilo. Day seven is one and a half milligrams per kilo. 
And then finally, the weekly dosing schedule of the one and a half milligrams once weekly. To allow for resolution of adverse events, knowing that the step-up dose um, and there are uh, toxicities related to teclistimab as it relates to cytokine release syndrome, step-up dose two can be given between days two and four and potentially up to seven days after the first step-up dose. This allows for flexibility for both the patient experiencing adverse events and potentially even for administration flexibility that we can talk about later. Now, the first treatment dose can be given between two to four days and potentially up to seven days after the step-up dose too. So again, to allow for resolution of these adverse events, the patients do have some flexibility in when these doses are administered. One caveat, though, to, to be mindful of is that patients should be hospitalized for 48 hours after the administration of all doses within the step-up schedule. So this is something that's interesting and I think can vary from center to center. Um, current state, we we still um, hospitalize our patients during step up. Um, and so based on this administration, that could be a nine day admission. Um, however, we have uh, kind of made that a little bit more flexible to um, tr- try to minimize the, the admission time. But certainly this can be very burdensome on the hospital um, and, and bed capacity. So in order to minimize the adverse events related to, to clistamab and the step up dosing, there are pre-medications that are recommended. These include uh, oral um, Benadryl, oral or IV dexamethasone, or and Tylenol. Um, these should be given one to three hours before each dose of the step-up dosing schedule and the first treatment dose at a minimum. I think frequently, though, we are continuing these pretty much past step-up as well, just to minimize adverse events. So, you know, I think the important thing to remember here with cytokine release syndrome is that it does occur with teclistimab even despite these premedications. Despite the dexamethasone that was given during step-up dosing, 72% of patients had some form of CRS. While despite that, all events were grade 1 to 2, except for one being more transient. In the trial, a majestic neurotoxicity occurred in 5 patients, or 3%, that had a total of 9 neurotoxicity events. Seven of those events were concurrent with cytokine release syndrome. All of the ICANS events were grade one and two, and they did fully resolve. And there were no treatment discontinuations or dose reductions due to neurotoxic events, including ICANS. So just something to be mindful of is that cytokine release syndrome does occur. However, it is a lower grade than we anticipate due to those steroids that we give ahead of time. There are several um, operational logistics and a, a large lift from a center perspective when trying to enroll and get a patient started on teclistimab. This includes a REMS program, a wallet card. Um, for each dose before it can be dispensed, there has to have a um, individual dispensing code um, with each cycle, um, depending on how you define a cycle um, in your, pro- in your um, electronic medical record. Also, in terms of the role of the pharmacist clinically, of course, there's a steroid premedication and step-up dosing. There's close monitoring as it relates to steroids. We do also have recommendations for um, antiviral prophylaxis until CD4 counts are greater than 200. We do have some guidance in terms of GCSF for higher-grade neutropenia. And we do, at least at my center, try to maintain a hemoglobin greater than 7 and platelet counts greater than 10 in these patients. So I introduced the very first bispecific, but by all means, it is not the last. And in fact, it's really just uh, opening up the Pandora's box of a whole bunch of other bispecifics that are currently in development. I won't waste a ton of time going through and fumbling through the pronunciations of these, but safe to say they all have a similar target 
and they all vary from administration of sub-Q or IV with different dosing frequencies, but very exciting time. It'll be very interesting to see how these continue to develop and we um, will how we will use them and in what sequence. I have two specific slides just dedicated to bispecifics and development. So lots going on. Most of them are BCMA and CD3, but there are some that, that do have other targets. Um, I'll, I'll direct your attention to telquinumab and sevastimab. Um, they do have different targets here. And again, the, just the difference being while there are bispecific, um, their, their administration between IV or sub-Q and then their dosing frequency does vary. So a very, very um, exciting time as it relates to bispecifics and multiple myeloma. Okay, so you really can't talk about multiple myeloma now without talking about BCMA CAR-T. This was also a very exciting time when these were approved in multiple myeloma. And just to orient you to the CAR-T journey as a macro view, these are unique in the fact that they do have a prolonged manufacturing time because patients have to undergo a leukophoresis process where their cells are shipped for manufacturing that can take anywhere from 17 to 28 or more days. Um, where the CAR T cells are isolated, activated, and then engineered T cells that are then infused back into the patient. This process can take a whole long time, about four to six weeks. And when the patient receives their CAR T cell infusion, that can typically be a seven-day admission. So it is a very complex and operational heavy um, uh, journey for our patients. Um, and going through a little bit more of the micro view, once the cells are received back in the back of the institution, a patient often undergoes bridging therapy during the time the cells are being manufactured. Um, again, being that the manufacturing time can be up to 28 or longer days. Once the cells are received back at the institution, the patient undergoes lymphodepleting chemotherapy. Then they are then admitted for CAR T-cell with a seven-day plus or minus admission. Again, depending on centers, some centers can do these outpatient. Um, and then the first 30 days are um, kind of the more acute toxicity management where there is risks of cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. But the journey doesn't end there. And often I think people forget that there is a lot of toxicities that we're still learning very much about in the long-term perspective, more than 30 days. These patients um, have significant hypogammaglobinemia, cytopenias, and infections. And we have a lot of research being done of how to manage patients more long-term. You can't talk about CAR T-cell therapy without talking about the village. There are so many individuals that are involved in CAR T-cell therapy beyond traditional chemotherapy that we would talk about. Um, this really goes from financial coordinators all the way to quality managers, um, data managers, you know, pharmacy, nursing, physicians, ICU teams, emergency room teams. There is a lot of individuals that are involved in the care of CAR T patients. And I think the patients themselves. So communication is really essential and very critical. If, if you um, are looking to onboard or start a new CAR T-cell program, it is a lot of, of work. Um, and so definitely like to introduce that um, factor and, and, um, and consider that. Switching gears a little bit now to talking about the CAR T-cells um, and the two that we have currently available on the market, IDICEL is the first that was approved. It is an anti-VCMA single-chain variable fragment that's fused to a CD8 linker region and the CD137 or the 41BB co-stimulatory domain with a CD3 signaling domain. So it is, um, the pivotal trials here is the KARMA trials. And this was, um, supported in later relapse settings. So in this trial, there were patients with relapse refractory multiple myeloma after greater than three lines of prior therapy. And this is important because the approval is a little bit different than that, than the trial itself. 
The overall response rate in Karma was 73%. And again, this is pretty compelling given that patients are heavily pretreated. 73% is pretty, uh, pretty unique in this disease state. Um, and in all the, in all the CAR T trials, we see similar numbers like this. The complete response rate was 33% with a median progression free survival of 20 months in patients that achieved CR. In Karma 3, ITISOL improved progression free survival in patients treated with two to four prior regimens. And the prior treatment included daratumumab, a protosome inhibitor, and an imid-containing regimen. The progression-free survival was found to be 13.3 months with idosol versus 4.4 months for standard triplet regimens. So really a very compelling agent to use in multiple myeloma. Now to be outdone, Siltacel is also effective in later or early relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. This construct is a little bit unique in that it has two BCMA-targeting domains designed to confer avidity plus a 4-1-BB co-stimulatory domain. The two pivotal trials here are CARTITUDE 1 and CARTITUDE 4. So CARTITUDE 1 supports the use of Siltacel in later relapse settings, again, in greater than three lines of prior therapy. This is pretty un uh, really remarkable that the overall response rate in this trial is 98%, two years post. And 83% of patients achieved a, uh, a complete remission with, with longer follow-up. In CARTITUDE 4, Siltacel improved progression-free survival in patients treated with one to three prior regimens, and the prior treatment being a proteasome inhibitor and an imid-containing regimen. So again, very, very active in these patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. So there are a lot of principles as it, as it comes to CAR T-cell. I already introduced the idea that communication is key. It is a, um, a heavy operational burden on centers. Um, it is important that um, if CAR T is not offered at your center, that a timely referral is made to a certified healthcare facility so because um, it is limited to sites that do um, have certain logistics in place. It is important also to avoid prophylactic use of dexamethasone or systemic corticosteroids. There is some concern that it may impact the efficacy of the CAR. This is not the same with uh, BCMA bispecific antibodies. So that is just one point of caveat that's different between CAR T cells and bispecifics. There are a host of adverse events, including cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity, um, as well as long-term events that can include hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis or macrophage activation syndrome, and then long-term cytopenias that, again, we're learning a lot about. It isn't just the CAR T-cell therapy alone as a one-and-done therapy. You also administer lymphodepleting chemotherapy, typically with cyclophosphamide and fludarabine. Although, safe to say, last year with the fludarabine shortage, we were all learning how to be pretty creative with this. Um, there are some pre-medication requirements with CAR T-cell therapies. And then, of course, the significant monitoring for cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. One point of caveat as well, it's part of the REMS program, as all of these agents and um, it, that includes idosol and siltacel are available through a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program. Centers that offer this have to have tocilizumab readily available. Um, and a lot of us either keep it patient-specific or have a high enough PAR so that we don't have to worry about ever running out of tocilizumab. But this was also a concern during the COVID pandemic when there was a tocilizumab shortage. So um, lots of uh, exciting operational logistics when it came to um, CAR T-cell therapy. Um, so let's go there. So when you're looking at CRS rates and ICANN rates between the two constructs, I always like to put a point of caveat that these two have not been compared head to head. So take these with a grain of salt when you look at a, a comparative table like this. 
Um, but there is any grade cytokine release syndrome is high for both siltacell and idacell. Um, and the median onset of CRS varies though based on the way the constructs are designed. So for siltacell, the median onset is seven days and idacell is one day. This can have an impact on decisions when it comes to being able to admit a patient or doing this therapy outpatient. Um, and for ICANS, any grade, 21% for siltacell and 18% for idacell. Infections were pretty prevalent, 58% in siltacell and 69% in idacell. And in terms of grade three or four neutropenia, more than one month post CAR T cell therapy, um, 10% in siltacell versus 41% in idacell. 30, uh, grade three or four thrombocytopenia, 25% siltacell and 48% in idacell. And there um, was a unique delayed neurotoxicity seen with siltacell that hasn't well been quite defined, but it is part of the warning label of 12% um, in, noted in siltacell. So some from important um, points for cytokine release syndrome as it relates to the constructs and multiple myeloma is we have a low threshold for using tocilizumab. Multiple myeloma is unique in that way that, at least for us, we do tend to treat with uh, tocilizumab at the first fever, even in grade one. Um, so we do have a high inventory of tocilizumab available should it be needed. CAR-T is almost always given inpatient. Again, there are some caveats. There are some centers that have been um, able to administer these safely outpatient. But this is often due to the timing of the cytokine release syndrome post-infusion. Again, looking at the median time of CRS. Um, and making sure that patient beds are available, that is something that has been um, a challenge with trying to get these patients and treated outpatient. And one a specific practice point that at least came up at our center is for patients on oral anticoagulation preparing for CAR-T, we do tend to transition them to low molecular weight heparins due to their shorter half-life should a patient develop neurotoxicity um, and need additional procedures. We didn't want to have to worry about um, concerns with anticoagulation. So that is one point um, that just recently um, came up. You know, I think it's really important that there is communication between all uh, all hours of the day, pharmacists and the medical teams to ensure that there's effective and continuous safety management. There's a lot going on when it comes to cytokine release syndrome in the first seven days. Looking over at practice points for neurological toxicities, there is a lot of monitoring. There is a specific neurotoxicity assessment that is completed to um, to assess for neurotoxicity. Other causes of neuro, uh, neurotoxicity should be ruled out. And a lot of times these patients are transitioned to the ICU and receive more intensive care support for life-threatening neurological toxicities. Some of the interventions that we try to make to prevent neurotoxicities, um, and when you look at the information, there is a recommendation for non-sedating anti-seizure medications uh, for patients who develop neurotoxicity. I think for the most part, most centers have implemented this as prophylaxis up front. Um, so we are no exception. We also do that as well. The, uh, the primary, um, treatment for neurotoxicity related to CAR T cell therapies is corticosteroids. Um, there is no role of tocilizumab here in, in neurotoxicity. And there is a baseline concern that potentially tocilizumab could make, um, neurotoxicity worse. Um, so the mainstay is corticosteroid therapy. We do try to minimize the use of corticosteroids, but again, as the grading of neurotoxicity increases and potentially gets worse, um, we do increase these doses pretty significantly. And then in a patient who develops any sort of cerebral edema, hyperventilation, and hyperosmolar therapy is recommended. Typically, this is managed pretty, pretty carefully by our, our um, neuro neurology colleagues. 
So in summary points on the role of the pharmacist in delivering care with patients that are receiving CAR-T is that we do play a central role in the coordination of care of these patients. That includes not only education of our colleagues, our patients, and the unique um, on the unique efficacy and safety profiles. There is significant coordination when it, as it relates to lymphodepletion, pre-medication, and making sure that we avoid steroids. We learn a lot about the different washout periods based on what bridging therapies we are selecting. Um, there are protocols to be developed for the use of tocilizumab and steroids for the treatment of cytokine release syndrome and ICANs. And then not to mention, last but certainly not least, the REMS compliance. Um, this is pretty significant um, burden on, on facilities to ensure compliance with REMS. Okay, now that we've gone through all of the different agents that are now available for multiple myeloma, it's time to talk through the case. And so I'd like to give it back to Don now to talk through some cases that we have in terms of lessons for pharmacy practice. Great. Thanks, Zara. That was a tour de force of BCMA and uh, CAR T-cell directed therapies. So wonderful summary. So let's kind of dive into the application of all of this information to individual uh, patients. And so looking at uh, perhaps one of our challenging areas, uh, how do we handle patients who might be older and theoretically might be more frail than, than younger patients? So let's take a look now at an older 75-year-old transplant ineligible patient um, with newly diagnosed disease uh, preparing for initial induction. Um, so, Zara, how would you think about the role of the pharmacist within this case, and, and how would you consider um, counseling, and, and both in the setting of uh, a triplet therapy for induction or perhaps even a quad therapy and induction? How would you consider those differently in the way you talk to the team and to the patient? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Honestly, I, I the role of the pharmacist doesn't change whether it's triplet versus quad. You know, I think um, for us, you know, I'd like a little bit more information, of course, being a pharmacist into the case. So to know, um, you know, understanding the patient's um, kind of other comorbidities, other things that are going on with them, whether or not they have a caregiver, uh, a reliable caregiver, et cetera. Um, you know, frequently we're using not only the, the hospital infusion chairs, but we're also tapping into our specialty pharmacy. So, um, there is a lot going on from a pharmacist perspective, trying to ensure proper and timely care. Um, but in terms of counseling, it really doesn't make a difference for me between treatment versus triplet versus quad. It's going to be a lot more of these operational logistics of how to make sure they get timely care. Um, and that they understand, um, understand their treatment, um, as best that they can. Yeah. Speaking of comorbidities, which comorbidities would you really want to know about, whether they were present or absent when you're thinking about these these therapy selections? Yeah. I mean, for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, it, the world is their oyster, right? So we have all these different options. You know, I think that um, at patients who have hypertension, um, you know, if they have any sort of cardiovascular disease, that's really important. Of course, um, any sort of history of AFib, all those um, different things that you know, any patient who is on anticoagulation, that's really important to understand um, where we're making our decisions and whether or not to proceed with a certain therapy option or not. All right. So let's carry Robert a little bit further. Um, if he were to receive a triplet or a quad, how would you consider um, the dosing and strategy of CD38-directed treatments? Um, and how would you sort of think about what might be added to it in terms of um, again, assessing different things and reviewing different uh, areas for monitoring. Yeah, I think the slide um, lists pretty, pretty, pretty thoroughly what we would consider. Um, you know, 
just like you mentioned in your presentation, we are very much a, a high preference for ZEPQ, um, DARE2 map, not only for patient preference, but also for chair, um, for chair time as well. Um, we've also significantly decreased our infusion monitoring time. I think we have maybe a, a 15 minute, but not, definitely not zero. So I'd have to look into that, um, recent publication. So, um, I appreciate you bringing that up. But I, I think this slide really, um, uh, lays it out pretty nicely of the things that we consider. Um, but yeah, for us, we would do sub-Q DARA and considering all those bullets that are listed on the slide. Yeah, certainly. Again, back to the idea of typing and crossing before CD38 therapy. We can't forget about bone health. So many of these patients will have had imaging or some other modality to really understand where they are with bone health and uh, considering bisphosphonates, stenosumab, et cetera. And of course, renal function at initiation and also downstream. Um, you know, and I'm a huge fan of full dose selenolidomide down to 30 mils per minute. You know, I'm reminded here by my physician colleagues that you don't have to get the calls late at night uh, for those patients. So anyway, it's uh, certainly fitting the, the therapy to the patient uh, who we're seeing. So let's take now a look at uh, the second case here, another older patient uh, with myeloma. So these are real world patients. Certainly the median age at diagnosis is 67. Uh, for patients with newly diagnosed myeloma. And so we have someone who has undergone a transplant um, and has undergone maintenance therapy uh, after that and is now relapsed and refractory. And so um, they progressed about three and a half years after completion of maintenance therapy with lenalidomide. How would you think about um, the, this patient in terms of DARA, ESA-based treatments and and the combinations that might be considered for, for her? I would think that the role of the pharmacist really doesn't change too much between daratumumab triplet versus isotuximab triplet. Really, the only difference that I can think of is the IV versus sub-Q at this point um, and making sure that, you know, patients are properly educated for either. Um, you know, care coordination-wise, you know, isotuximab just being IV and the way it currently is, um, it'll have a longer chair time and an understanding of that. Um, but really, other than that, there isn't a ton more that we would do differently between the two um, beyond education and an understanding that the chair time will be longer. Okay. How would you think about adding drugs to either one of these CD38 antibodies? Is the world still their oyster, as you said earlier, or do we need to be more directed in someone who's gone through standard induction, transplant, LEN maintenance? Yeah, that's a great question. You know... Multiple myeloma has always been uh, kind of a mix and match. There is no one size fits all. It's kind of, you know, treat to what's working and then switch to something different if, if you notice progression. Um, I don't have any hesitation with either of them should, should a patient progress. You know, being that this patient is 70, likely not going to be someone well, who's already gone through transplant in this case. Um, you know, I don't think I'd make any changes between one or the other, honestly. All right. And so, um, again, both options certainly are reasonable, as we mentioned. Um, similarly to our previous case, really understanding cardiovascular function, pulmonary function, uh, making sure that we have a good baseline of knowledge around those. Um, uh, carfilzomib, pomalidomide platform, you know, again, comorbidities and thinking about um, ability to receive anticoagulation, bleeding risk, um, cardiovascular history with carfilzomib can be given, just needs to be monitored carefully heart failure, et cetera. And of course, again, bone health, supportive meds, and all those things that we think about um, need to be considered with uh, antiviral prophylaxis and others. And so uh, I think a good discussion, but certainly a, a pretty standard patient in many ways um, that you might consider 
either of these two options as, as patients move into there. This would be second line therapy, but uh, would certainly continue to, uh, to be useful. So let's move on now into CAR T-cell therapies and relapsed and refractory treatment. Loved your conversation around CAR T-cells, certainly thinking carefully about that entire process and then dealing with curveballs like fludarabine shortages and other things that can come up. Uh, so this is Tamara. This is a 68-year-old individual with relapsed and refractory disease and had previously received four lines of therapy. A good performance status, good functional status, and has a can is a candidate for CAR T-cell um, and has questions around exactly what you brought up, the referral idea, the processes for that, and access to centers that can deliver CAR T-cells effectively. Uh, so again, planning for this, just reiterate for us uh, the thoughts around treatment and, uh, and the referral process and, uh, and how can we think about um, some of the, the educational aspects and some of the safety aspects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can talk about CAR T-cells all day. So, um, you know, one thing to note, uh, and I did try to talk about it a little bit in the presentation, is that both um, the KARMA trials and CAR-2 trials were in patients with three or more lines of, of therapy, but the FDA approval came through for more more than four lines of prior treatment. So that is something that is unique that um, the approval did vary slightly from the pivotal trials. However, there are more recent data that is being published looking at using CAR T-cell therapy in earlier lines of care. Um, and I anticipate that that will come and be a more standard process before the end of the year, um, I, if I had my guess, if I was a betting person. Um, but that being said, one point of contention um, that we have often run into is how do you define a line of treatment and what does that look like? And, and you know, with these patients who are relapse refractory, you know, there is a lot of start and stop and um, a lot of toxicities along the way. And so do you consider a repeat of a previous regimen another line or is it a continuation of the previous line and how does that look? So there is a lot of coordination and specifically with multiple myeloma when it relates to just the, what line of therapy are they on? Um, you know, for a patient who has questions over the referral process and access to specialized centers, thankfully, each of the um, commercial products has a listing of, of available treatment centers with a uh, kind of a navigation for a referral. Um, once a patient is referred to a CAR-T center, the role of the pharmacist in care coordination goes back to not only the lines of prior therapy, what bridging ther therapy will we use, um, and the, just the timing of it all, honestly. Um, most centers now that are CAR-T center are, are staffed appropriately and the education for staff has been completed. It then relates to the patient education. Patients um, are provided a wallet card and are told to stay within the facility for eight weeks, uh, close to the facility within eight weeks and not to, for eight weeks and are told not to drive for that amount of time. So there are some very specific patient education points to address for patients that are receiving CAR T-cell therapy. For formulary, um, we follow the same process. Um, so if a CAR T-cell or any product is approved, it follows the same process through our health system. We do have specific safety protocols for teclistimab and then also for um, these CAR T-cell therapies, individual um, safety protocols. So just something to be, um, to be aware of and just a lot of work that goes into providing these CAR T-cells to patients. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, you know, you think about that eight-week period, it's, it's almost like an allo transplant in many ways. You really are thinking about intensive monitoring, intensive um, uh, oversight of the whole process. 
And as you stated during your talk, you know, these aren't just 30 day windows. They certainly need to be managed longer, uh, for longer periods. And aftercare is certainly a critical important, critically important part of this too. Okay. So that's case three. Um, so let's say that, uh, Tamara couldn't wait for her therapy or had access challenges uh, to CAR T, uh, treatment or, or other issues. Uh, she's now worsening in her performance status and um, the access isn't quite clear. And she's now got rapidly progressive disease with immediate treatment. So this brings up the question, okay, how do you, how do you handle this patient in this way? Um, for a BCMA by specific treatment, um, how would you think about that differently than CAR T cells? Um, obviously, there's no lymphoid depleting portion and it is off the shelf, as, as you mentioned. And then how would we think about that for this patient? Uh, for inpatient dosing, outpatient dosing, uh, and thinking about infections and other adverse events associated with, uh, as of now, teclistamab or perhaps uh, an investigational one on trial. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the adverse event um, profile for the bispecific antibodies, while similar to CAR-T, are, are unique in their own way. Um, we do know that thanks to the steroid pre-medication and potentially even post-medication for patients going home on steroids as well, um, the adverse event profile of the CRS rates, neurotoxicity rates are less, um, per the pivotal trials. Um, I, I will certainly say that in clinical practice, this can vary because you don't have those pristine patients. You have very, um, significantly pretreated patients and, um, who, who aren't, who aren't the best patients who likely wouldn't have fit on inclusion or exclusion criteria in the clinical trials. So, the tolerability of these agents um, has varied um, outside of the pivotal trials. You know, we do have a standalone bispecific um, toxicity management protocol. Um, one thing that we don't do with CAR-T or with bispecifics um, that we do with CAR-T is that with CAR-T, like I mentioned, we do tend to give tocilizumab with that first fever. We don't do that with bispecifics um, because uh, we just that hasn't been something that we've done given that the, they are on steroids ahead of time. Now we do, um, like I mentioned, admit our patients for step up dosing at this point, um, just to make sure that we can properly monitor our patients for cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity. Although I am very much looking forward to being able to pull these outpatient. Um, but at this point, we do have a seven day admission, basically. Um, you know, for patients that have active infections, we do and have withheld step up dosing. Um, for those patients who, let's say, get to the weekly dosing and they're doing fine, if they do develop an infection and have to hold on treatment, we have to restart step-up dosing. So, you know, it is something to be mindful of is it's not just one-time step-up dosing. If there's a delay in treatment, that, that step-up dosing has to occur again. So um, there is, uh, again, logistics as it relates to bispecific antibodies. Um, this, you know, it's nice that you can start and stop it at, as the patient tolerates. But there are some unique um, kind of logistics that go into play here as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point about the delay and restarting step-up dosing. And that's because, you know, people might say, well, we don't have to do that with CD38 antibodies. Why do you have to do that here? And the turnover of BCMA is so rapid. It's a very um, short-lived protein and can continue to be regenerated, as was shown with some of the early pharmacodynamic data with belantamab. Um, and so, you know, it's a good marker, but it's certainly uh, the tolerability for, for stepping it back up is there too. And hopefully people can remember, you know, blenitumumab and the need to re-up there uh, too when pe people had substantial holds between doses. 
Well, thanks, Zora, for that uh, case discussion and, again, for our work on this presentation together. Um, there's some of the take-home points are that we've really got an individualized treatment overall. We need to be thoughtful about that based on comorbidities, um, logistics, and other operational things that need to be uh, considered in any patient's care. I'll be prepared to use fairly aggressive treatment early on. Again, match the therapy to the patient in terms of their performance status, disease burden, and other factors. Um, and then finally, uh, think about all the care that pharmacists are going to need to help participate in and lead when it comes to adjunctive care, supportive care, uh, patient counseling, team education, and those items that uh, are critically important to make sure patients have optimal outcomes. Again, we've got a clear role in our profession uh, for many of these areas, and we need to continue to step to the forefront as we consider our role within the care of patients with newly diagnosed and relapsed disease. So some quick Q&A uh, that's come up, Zara. I'm curious to get your thoughts on these. Um, first off, what do you think is preferred bridging treatment for patients undergoing CAR-T therapy? I think that's the million dollar question. Honestly, there isn't a preferred bridging therapy. It is not a one size fits all. It really depends on, you know, the patient, their comorbidities, what they've had before, their prior treatment history and what they'll be able to tolerate. You know, I think when we're making the decision and individualizing the bridging for our patients, it takes all of those factors into account. Um, also knowing and trying to time it um, properly with the washout periods and knowing when the CAR T cells um, will be re delivered back to the facility. So um, I wish I had a, you know, this is exactly what you need to give, like for the lymphodepleting. depleting. But it also, but also on the flip side, it allows us some flexibility um, to kind of mix and match and do what we want in the case of shortages, because that was a really significant shortage that is just now improving, I think is improving, but is, was a significant one. Um, so it's good to have options. So there isn't one uh, preferred bridging therapy at this point. Great. I'm going to um, move along now to another question that I think is really important. Experience with CD38s and teclistimab in individuals with renal dysfunction. Uh, we've got a trial going here where we're using daratumumab up front in individuals who are with newly diagnosed disease with bortezomib and dex and then adding lenalidomide on at cycle two uh, for patients with creatinine clearances below 30. And we're seeing some really nice responses, recovery of renal function, which is the, the issue. And so uh, at least at our center, you know, again, it's back to the idea of can patients generally tolerate daratumumab and renal function has had almost no impact on choice of, of dose if they can get it. How about at, uh, at Kansas? Yeah, same. I mean, we know that renal dysfunction is a manifestation of multiple myeloma. And so we don't want to preclude a patient having access or being able to use CD38 or other treatment options. And so, um, you know, we routinely um, are utilizing these therapies in patients with renal dysfunction for that very reason, given that we know that you know, it is a common um, and frequent manifestation of the, the disease itself. Okay. And real quick, I'll ask you to take this one. How closely should we be monitoring individuals for adverse events during the step-up dosing of teclistimab? Should it be daily, weekly? Uh, what, are, what are you doing there? Yeah, so I suppose since, uh, since we are admitting our patients um, at, during the step-up dosing at this point, it is daily. I would definitely say that during step-up, it needs to be daily. Um, for patients that um, obviously have made it to the full dose, potentially could, could pull back a little bit and not do it quite as frequently. But, um, you know, for us, for teclistimab during step-up dosing, um, I, I 
we are monitoring them every doing, you know, vital signs and, and neurotox screening every six hours while they're admitted. So um, it is pretty frequent to make sure that we don't miss any cytokine release syndrome. You know, I think this book uh, bodes a really great discussion on patient wearable devices. Should they be admitted, ad, you know, administered outpatient um, and, and how frequently you would do adverse event monitoring there. But um, for now, we do it pretty frequently because they are admitted. Again, on behalf of Zara, I'd like to thank you, the audience, for participating in this education. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NDY860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC and Sanofi.